Hi, I'm Katrina Ingram. Welcome to Back to School Again, the show for midlife learners. This season, we're pleased to partner with Athabasca University as we take our show production fully online. Athabasca University is celebrating 50 years as Canada's online university. On this show, we talk with midlife learners about their educational journeys, sharing their stories about how they are balancing the demands of school, work, and family, and where they hope their educational pursuits will take them. My guest today is Tim O'Brien. He's an executive with Microsoft based in Seattle, where he works on tech policy and ethics advocacy. He works with customers and industry stakeholders to advocate for the responsible use of technology And he's a student studying law at the University of Washington. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to talk with you because tech ethics is something that I'm really passionate about, and it's my area of research. So I'd love to know more about that work and how it's intersecting with your legal studies. But before we go there, I just want to uh, set a bit of context um, and talk about the time that you've spent at Microsoft. So you've been there for 17 years, and I'd love to know about your career path leading up to now. What type of work have you been involved with over the years, and how did that lead to your current role? Well, my background is in uh, technical product marketing and technology evangelism, primarily with the developer community. In fact, my first 10 years uh, with Microsoft, I'd spent in developer relations. So uh, that was really my, my passion, advocacy and evangelism in that context was really the, the skill set that I built out. Over the course of my career, and I, I took a bit of a, a pivot after 10 years um, and took the, the, the first and only job I've ever had in communications, which was looking after global communications for the company, which was, which was comms outside of North America and corporate. Uh, because it had a distinctively global remit, it was much more uh, engaged on the, on the global sales and marketing side with our global subsidiaries was a community of, I don't know, 150-ish people distributed over 30 countries. So I was on the road all the time, loved it. Uh, I never lived overseas in my career. So that was, uh, uh, I think, the next best thing. And uh, it was around halfway through that time period that AI, after decades and decades of, of disappointing and going nowhere, finally became a commercial commercially viable technology. And and I, as interested as as I was in the promise of what AI could do, I became equally interested in what could go wrong. And we had made some statements early on about the collective responsibility required of the developer community to make sure that we build AI-based technologies and, and apps and solutions in a responsible way with consideration for things like fairness and accountability and transparency, which would have been a body of research in academia for, for decades. Uh, MIT was doing uh, science and technology studies coursework, I think even back in the 1990s. So this is all net new to the, the tech industry, it was certainly new to me. And uh, I became very interested in the need to talk to our enterprise customers uh, about what this meant for the next wave of tech, uh, certainly AI, and carved out a role doing exactly that evangelism and advocacy for responsible use of this technology. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Well, that sounds amazing. And I, I definitely want to talk with you more about that because that's something I'm, I'm super interested in myself. Um, but we're going to start out by uh, talking about your back to school journey. So I noticed that your undergrad is in engineering and uh, you did that degree way back in the 80s and then you did an MBA in the 90s. So I'm going to start with a big picture question about what it's like to do a degree uh, now that you're in your 50s and kind of contrasting that with 
the degrees that you did when you, you were in your 20s or your 30s. Um, what's it been like to go back at this stage of life? Well, it's decidedly more digital. And given that I've spent my whole career in the tech industry, that wasn't particularly jarring as it would be for somebody uh, who is my age, who's not just been around uh, tech uh, as much as I have. But it's, um, I, I get a lot of energy being um, just from learning generally, but but uh, it's called institutional attachment. I think I felt the need for uh, obviously continuing education in this domain. And uh, we can talk a little bit bit more about that if it, if it makes sense. Um, but uh, use of digital tools uh, for things that I just uh, were decidedly analog, I guess, back in the 80s and 90s. Last time I handed in a test, I handed it into a professor, it was a human being, it was on a piece of paper. And today everything is done on learning platforms like like Canvas. University of Washington uses Canvas, as most do other as most other universities do. In the U.S., unless you've been a if you've been a teacher or a student anytime in the last decade, you probably know Canvas. But I didn't know anything about it till uh, our kids went off to college, and you know would talk about how I have to take a test sometime tomorrow, and uh, that was kind of a foreign concept to me because when I was in school, you were told be in this building in this room at this time and be ready to take this test. So the idea that uh, students today were given a seventy-two hour window to take a test and do it online any way they wanted that. That was new to me. My uh, kind of a funny story. My my uh, son missed a homework assignment and tried to explain to my wife and I how he got mixed up between 12 a.m. and 12 p.m. Missed the hand in deadline, and we just thought, hmm, this sounds really fishy. Are you sure you didn't just blow it off or forget to write it in your calendar or something? And then the same thing happened to me like two years <laughs> later. I uh, <laughs> got mixed up with a, a timestamp on Canvas. And uh, forgot to turn in a homework assignment and went back and told my wife, like, hey, he was telling the truth two years ago. This actually does, does happen. That ad that adaptation, um, the, the going to class, doing homework, making time to study, um, using all the digital tools, uh, It's that was all net new to me. That's amazing. Yeah, I was just thinking, that's the modern version of the dog ate my homework story. It's like the timestamp was, was wrong on my homework. Exactly. If I've learned anything in all these years in technology, software has bugs. And sometimes it doesn't work right. So when I would submit a homework assignment or a test on Canvas, I'd get the um, confirmation page and I would take a screenshot of it and save it in my folder just in case uh, a professor came back and said, well, you didn't hand in your homework and I had proof. Just, just this paranoia about software not doing what it was supposed to do. You have to think about that when you hand in a piece of paper to a professor like we did in the, in the 90s. So, you know, it's just kind of, it's funny. None of it is you know, particularly debilitating, uh, just kind of interesting things you have to learn on the on the experience curve. I can totally relate to that. I, I've done the same thing where I have my backup plan. Um, I'm curious, though. So, you know, you started this journey last fall um, and, it, and you had to go on campus. This is an in-person um, program. So, you know, were you nervous at all about going back? Like, did you have any anxiety? Were you intimidated by this process at all? Or, or what were you feeling like when you stepped on campus that first time? It was pretty energizing for me. I, you know, nowadays there's there's all kinds of different mediums through which you can get education. You can take online coursework. You can sign up for courses on Coursera. You can consume uh, content on the internet and kind of build your own curriculum. And I felt pretty strongly about the the need to have an attachment to an institution uh, for reasons I I don't think I I can really explain. I just have a bias toward that. I kind of like 
gothic architecture and ivy colored buildings and you know the energy you get from um, a student body and so having a world-class institution 10 miles from microsoft's campus uh seemed like a, a pretty pretty obvious thing for me relative to say e-learning options and uh i wasn't i wasn't nervous at all i couldn't wait as a matter of fact i mean i was as giddy with excitement for the first day of class as i was for um you know any other any other big step any other big milestone uh it's kind of interesting the first class i ever took in law school was a uh, law 100 class introduction to, to law that was one of these 150 student lecture classes with a lot of different people in it uh undergraduate freshmen uh, uh law law school students um phd candidates people were auditing the class and so the the age range in that that classroom went from 18 years old to uh, i think there were a couple students in their 60s in that class so it's just it's just very interesting seeing the the cross-section of different experience uh and um i think education that comes through in particularly particularly in a domain like this where the education relies heavily on class discussion that's kind of nice, though, to to go back and, and to see folks who are, you know, in kind of what we might consider retirement age, but they're coming back and they're learning new things. And I think it's, you know, it's probably helpful for you as well, like coming in there and seeing a range of people and not just, oh, everybody's 18 and, and I maybe don't feel as, as in place here. Um, now, I want to talk about how you made this work in terms of uh, fitting school into a very busy life. So you're an executive for Microsoft, you've got a family, you've got all the demands that come with being a parent. How are you managing your time in order to fit schoolwork into your schedule? Well, there's three big consumers uh, of time. Time is the, the scarce resource. It tends to be, well, I mean, throughout your life, right? It tends to be work, family, and, and other. And other for me um, was really a set of recreational pursuits relating to the bike riding mountain biking road biking um i've done it all i've been doing that for years and years and that was the thing i decided is just going to have to be backburnered i'm just going to have to pull way back on that to carve out time uh, especially on the weekends to to get through all the, the studying i needed to do so the the six seven hour bike rides needed to disappear and get uh replaced with with homework and studying which was completely fine um i i don't you know, as, as sacrifices go, this barely registers as a sacrifice compared to some of the other things that people do uh, to get through an education while they're at work. I actually finished uh, business school at Northwestern the year before my wife and I had our first child, my, my oldest. Um, she was born the year after I graduated from Northwestern. And then I started at uh, University of Washington a couple of years after both of them were out of the house and off to college. So there's a there's an 18 year window there where I was not in school where they were babies very small children up through the formative uh, years of their life up through high school and then they just disappear and go to college so the family demands go in decline as your kids get more and more independent they get less and less interested in things like family vacations they want to hang out with their friends so um, that timing turned out to be coincidental was not by design but I just don't have the demands on my family life that I had when my wife and I had two your kids in the house. Right. And generally, what do they think about your back to school journey, your family? What do they think? You know, I never really asked them about it. Um, I mean, my wife is uh, incredibly supportive, uh, as she always has been and continues to be. And, and uh, I don't know, I never really asked my kids, what do you what do you think of this? 
I suppose if you were to ask them without me in the room, they'd probably say, you know, well, what a, it's some kind of example I'm setting. But the thing that I, I tell them is that uh, you never want to lose this hunger for learning. Uh, the days of just resting on your laurels and thinking about, you know, I've got this degree, I've got this education, I've got this experience, now I'm entitled to some sort of promotion or career advancement or something like this. And that was just a, I think, a, a, a thing within my family. My, my dad went to college on the GI Bill after he got back from Korea. He went and got his MBA at night while working full time uh, the same way I did. And he was very, very steadfast about the importance of education. In fact, one time uh, when I was at Purdue, an undergrad, uh, and, and money was tight because his, his business uh, was struggling there for a bit, and I offered to get a job uh, in West Lafayette, working in a bike shop, you know, turning wrenches for 10 hours a week or something like that just to get beer money. And he said, no, your job is to be in the library. Let me worry about paying for college. Your job is to be in the library and study. So there was a very early... I think emphasis on just continuing education, being a lifelong learner that was instilled early on. I've passed that on to my own my own kids. My daughter actually is starting grad school this fall. Uh, so who knows? I, I don't think I get to take credit for that. She's a high achiever in her own right. But um, uh, yeah, incredible support from the from the family. That is a fantastic kind of intergenerational story that that you've just told. I love that how your dad kind of set that example for you. You're setting that example for your kids. And even though you maybe haven't explicitly uh, discussed it, it, it's kind of there just, you know, they're seeing uh, that that education is more than just kind of um, a one and done. It's sort of this lifelong journey um, and, and kind of seeing that uh, exemplified in what you're doing. Um, just to get maybe a little bit more specific about how you... Um, focused yourself uh, during this time. Do you have any specific study techniques that you can share with our audience? Nothing particularly innovative. Uh, I, I had terrible study habits uh, when I was younger, uh, trying to study in front of the TV, that sort of stuff, just, just terrible nonsense study habits. And, you know, solving equations is very different than reading uh, a legal case, for example. So the, the, you have to adapt your study habits to the the domain, I think. And, you know, retention, uh, reading comprehension is incredibly important when you're studying things like law, because you know, you're going to get called on in class by a professor who, you know, start off the class saying, okay, who read the case of Roadrunner versus Wiley Coyote? Who can tell me the facts of the case? Uh, what are the possible causes of action here? What are the defenses? And you have to be ready with that. So um, you really do have to find quiet space and optimize for reading comprehension, uh, which you don't have to do when you're studying, um, you know, fluid mechanics or accounting or some of this, this other stuff. You know, and I would be, I don't want to, I think, underestimate the importance of just having kind of a, a, a learning mindset. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the influence of Microsoft on this uh, as well. You know, Microsoft, as I think has been well documented, has undergone a, a fairly radical culture transformation in the five years Satya Nadella has been CEO. And uh, a lot of it anchors on lifelong learning, continuous learning, what Satya would refer to as a the transformation from a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture. And, and he'd been at the company for 20-odd years, even before he became CEO. So he'd seen enough of this know-it-all Kind of let me tell you about my degrees, let me tell you about my education, 
And his, his view was, you know, if you really want to show off how smart you are, you know, get some self-awareness about what you don't know and go seek learning, seek understanding. I don't care how you do it. Um, go to Coursera, go back to school, whatever it is you need to do, but, but you need to get in this mindset of continuous learning and continuous uh, development. And this is all based on Carol Dweck's research uh, from Stanford. Carol Dweck wrote a book called Mindset that describes this kind of whole process. So I was, uh, despite my, I think, lifelong learner attitude toward continually wanting to learn new stuff, uh, I was simultaneously influenced by what was happening here at Microsoft uh, at the same time. And it, it certainly helped as a, uh, uh, a reinforcement, I guess you could say. That's fantastic. I, I love that idea of the learning culture. And I, I think you're right. Like, I feel like there's so much um, information in the world to kind of consider yourself um, an expert because you did some work in an, uh, a subject area a few years ago or decades ago, and then you haven't really added to that body of knowledge since then. Um, you know, I, I think there's, uh, you know, almost an arrogance about that or a naivete. Um, <laughs> um, I'm wondering about this idea of mindset a little bit more because many of the guests on the podcast have talked about this whole um, notion of needing to relearn how to learn, to learn how to learn. Um, was that the case for you or did you kind of already have that um, piece uh, in place? I, I kind of already had it. But the, the thing that was missing for me was the uh, accountability, I guess is the, the best word to describe it. So as an example, when, I, when, when Microsoft started investing more and more in AI and a AI started to reach critical mass in terms of commercial viability, I didn't feel I knew enough about it to speak credibly about it to customers. And so like, like many, many other people in the tech industry, I took Andrew Ng's machine learning course at Stanford. You can go on Coursera, it's a free course, maybe one of the most popular courses on Coursera. And it's part uh, theoretical lecture-based and uh, it's also part uh, coding. You have to download MATLAB and do all these coding exercises. And it just gets progressively difficult as you go through the, the 10 weeks or whatever uh, that course is. And it got and my coding days are way in the rearview mirror for me. I'm not a proficient uh, developer by any stretch of the imagination, and MATLAB was all new to me. And so the coding exercises really started to get gnarly toward the last uh, third to quarter of the course, and I and I bailed out. I didn't didn't finish it. Uh, I knew enough about machine learning by the time it was over to be able to explain to you, you know, how classifiers work and so forth. But I just didn't have the accountability required. Uh, by a push pin on a calendar that says you're going to have a final exam on this date. And so uh, I, I know myself well enough to know that I can sign up for everything in sight on Coursera. I'll probably end up signing for more things than I'm able to finish because there's no professor, there's no grade, there's no final determination of how much you learned. And that's what uh, I think the when I decided to commit myself to a learning path, I needed that structure and that accountability because I just knew myself well enough to know I'd, I'd probably bail out on things that were less interesting to me, just like I did uh, Andrew Ng's course. Yeah, you know, I think that's a common issue with some of the um, really self-regulated uh, online learning courses like Coursera is that it doesn't have that level of accountability and, and structure. And I, I think you're you're not unlike many of us. I think many of us do need that. We need to know that there's some kind of exam or, or something hinging on, on what we've been studying um, in order to complete it. So we're, uh, we're going to dig in now and uh, talk a little bit more about law school. Um, 
So why law and why this particular degree at the University of Washington? So this is kind of an interesting story. I was thinking about law school actually very shortly after undergrad. Uh, I went to engineering school in the 80s. A lot of the engineering students that I studied with uh, planned on going to law school to learn intellectual property. And this is on the eve of this hyper growth in the, in the software industry that took place in the 90s. That was certainly the a high growth period for Microsoft and a lot of other companies that I guess became real uh, in that era. So there's a lot of, I think, people I went to school with uh, at Purdue who went on to law school, became IP lawyers and are probably, you know, serving as corporate counsel somewhere. I never had a lot of interest uh, in that, never had a lot of interest in contract law or IP, which is what a lot of corporate counsel work was at the time. Um, I was just interested enough in the domain to kind of poke around at it. And Northwestern at the time offered a joint JD MBA. It was in partnership between Kellogg and the Northwestern School of Law. I was already planning on going at night. I had no plan to go back full time. And uh, uh, the idea, you know, three years of night school just to get through Kellogg was hard enough as it was. The idea of doing the joint program and doing that for six years just was not not palatable. So I did the MBA, thought about law school off and on for somewhere on the uh, order of, I don't know, 20 years, I guess, and could never just justify the commitment that a JD required. Uh, and, a, and, a, and a Juris Doctor degree is, uh, you know, it's three years of full time. It's pretty, pretty intense. And doing that part time would, would obviously create a bunch of other challenges. And I had, you know, as I mentioned earlier, small kids at home during those years. But as I progressed through my career and 10 years ago, you know, cloud computing became commercially viable and raised all sorts of legal issues related to data sovereignty and privacy and, uh, you know, new legal frontiers were being explored because of this uh, uh, advancing march of new tech, uh, including some international law relating to how data moves across borders between countries and, and, and what jurisdiction uh, applies in certain legal situations and entanglements. And I just didn't understand the domain well enough to explain it to a customer and would always have to bring one of my lawyer colleagues into a customer conversation and started looking at law school again. And sure enough, JD was the only option. Along comes AI. The legal entanglements uh, between the law and this generation of technology go up to even a higher level with uh, relating to uh, discriminatory outcomes based on algorithms that treat certain groups of people, protected classes differently. Surveillance scenarios that give rise to all sorts of questions about uh, conspicuous notice and informed consent. Uh, a new generation of privacy issues that we weren't even thinking about in the cloud days and the, the legal entanglements became so intense that I just decided, you know, I, I can't put this off anymore. I, I have to go learn enough about this domain to be able to talk credibly about not just the technology and not just its impact on people in society, but what it means for existing foundations of law and maybe what new laws have to be, have to be created to, to deal with this. We're seeing this in facial recognition right now, for example. So I took another pass at this, um, as we talked about earlier, you know, I wasn't really interested in an e-learning degree because we have this incredible university just right across the lake here in Seattle. And I found this program, which is a, a master of jurisprudence program, uh, which is basically a law degree for non-lawyers. It is not a JD. It's a course, it's a, a course of study, a graduate program that takes 45 credits to graduate. So you could probably do it full-time in one year. 
I'll do it part-time in, in two years. And the funny thing about this, uh, Katrina, is when I, when I told my lawyer friends that, oh yeah, I'm going back to law school, before I could even get another word out of my mouth, they said, oh, huge mistake. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Huge mistake. <laughs> really? And, and so why did they say that? And, I, and it was funny. I, I, and they always, they said, um, and these were not litigators, right? These were people doing public policy. They would say like everything that I needed to know to do the job I have now, I learned in my first year. I don't need a JD to do public policy work. Uh, that just was the only thing available. And I said, whoa, just hang on a sec. Let me tell you what this actually is. It's a, it's a degree program for non-lawyers. Um, credits don't count toward a JD. I cannot be barred in the state of Washington or any place else. I'll never see the inside of a courtroom. I'll never be, you know, providing legal experience, uh, legal counsel, either to my company or anybody else for that matter. I'll just be able to navigate legal discussions in the context of my, my job, which is responsible use of AI specifically technology generally. And it's funny, uh, more than one of them said, oh, geez, you know, I wish they'd had that degree when I went to law school. I would have done that instead. <laughs> and uh, I started looking into the kind of the, the, the arc of JD enrollment over the decades, and it has been in decline. I think there are a lot of people like me who'd love to learn the legal domain and have no interest in committing to that course of study. So I applaud University of Washington for being, I think, one of the early ones to create this degree program. I know other schools are doing it and, you know, and it's kind of a case of better late than ever. I'd waited 20 years for this program to be available and here it is. And it just fit perfectly. It's exactly what, what uh, I'd been looking for all these years. That is fantastic. And it's, it's so nice to, um, to hear you talk about just wanting, you want the domain knowledge. It's not that you want to be a lawyer and that's certainly not where this is leading you uh, into the courtroom, but but having kind of that domain knowledge, and I, I think what you're hitting on too is sort of this need to have um, interdisciplinary knowledge. So as law uh, and tech are, are more and more entangled, as you've described, this need for us to kind of have a skill set that speaks to a couple of different types of domains becomes even more important. Um, I want to talk about one of your essays. So I read one of your essays on LinkedIn. Um, it's about contact tracing apps, and it was your final paper for the Law in a Time of COVID-19 course. And you said it was inspired by this question. Can someone be legally compelled to respond to a contact tracing request, or is it voluntary? And I think this is a really timely question. Um, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners what answer you landed on. So the short answer is yes, they can. This is kind of an interesting thing. Contact tracing, I think, as most of your listeners know, has been around, I think, since the 1800s. They're basically public health detectives who can figure out uh, who you've been in contact with for purposes of, of tracing the path of uh, an infectious disease. And this process has really been honed and perfected in Asia uh, as a result of SARS in 2003. So uh, Singapore, uh, South Korea, Japan, China, these countries are all very, very good at doing this. This is kind of new uh, here in the United States. And we're in, the, we're in the digital era now where everyone has a you know, mobile phone in their pocket. And so the, the, the idea of digital contact tracing uh, got a lot of attention and energy, particularly in the, the tech industry where a lot of big tech companies, Microsoft included, were, were looking to do something additive and helpful as we were still struggling in the, in the early days of the, the pandemic. 
And so I was talking to some researchers about some of the issues related with digital contact tracing, which for your listeners who don't know is a, is a mechanism by which location-based data on your cell phone will send you a notification uh, if you've been in contact with someone who got a positive result uh, sometime in the last two weeks. And based on that, then you should, you should quarantine. And I was wondering, like, what happens if you get that notification? And can you just blow it off? Can you just ignore it? Uh, if you get a phone call from a local health official that says, hey, I'm the contact tracer that's been assigned to your case. Um, some person that you hung out with uh, a week ago just got a positive result, so you need to quarantine. And is there any way you could just say, no, I'm not going to do that. I think this is this is dumb. I don't believe in it, et cetera. All the, I think a lot of, of the anger and frustration issues that we've seen associated with uh, people uh, not wanting to to do what their local governments tell them. So I did some investigation and found out that um, legally you could be compelled to do that. And I, I think the, some of the context here involves the way it was playing out in other countries. I think most of us have probably seen a video or two on the internet of Chinese health officials dragging someone out of their apartment uh, against their will to drag them off to a flu clinic or, or an isolation ward. And the comments are what you would expect on social media, right? Good thing we don't live in a country like that. And it's a good thing we have freedom and liberty and rights here. And it turns out that uh, in every state in the United States, there are quarantine and isolation statutes on the books. Many of them were put there in the aftermath of the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 and during the tuberculosis outbreaks that took place in the 50s, where uh, governors of states, every state in America, uh, have broad powers to take draconian, drastic action in the face of fires, floods, earthquakes, infectious disease outbreaks, anything that's a threat to public safety, health, and welfare. So as a practical matter, I don't think any law enforcement agency in the United States wants to be on the evening news uh, dragging someone out of their house to go take them off to, to an isolation ward. So I don't, I don't see that actually happening. But if it were to happen, it would be lawful. Here in Washington State, it's at the discretion at the local level of a local health officer who can tell you, look, if you don't want to volunteer voluntarily uh, isolate, then uh, you, know, you, can, you can compel that person to do it forcibly for 10 days and you can extend it by another 30 days with a court order. And this is not just a, a liberal democratic blue state thing. Every single state, Democratic, Republican, doesn't matter. Every single state in America has statutes on the book that, that uh, empower the local government to do exactly that. So that was kind of uh, eye-opening. And then since then, I think you've, you've seen the same thing I have on the news with people talking about their rights and liberties and a lot of this this rhetoric and i just think there's a real lack of awareness among citizenry certainly here in the united states about what local governments are, are empowered by law to, to do yeah i think i think here in canada as well and i i think it is quite shocking i mean i understand it um on the one hand um emergency measures um doing what's right for the collective good and having the uh legal authority to do that on the other hand um for most of us, uh, this is unlike anything that we've ever experienced before because we just haven't had our liberties subjected to um, to that level of curtailment. Um, I'm also finding, like, this is an area that's evolving very rapidly. Um, 
Are, are you finding it hard to stay on top of, of this topic um, as it evolves? And, or how are you staying on top of this topic? I'm trying to stay on top of it in a way that compartmentalizes some of the technical and legal issues from some of the political rhetoric. That's, I think that's the, the hardest thing. There are technical issues associated with how this can work in a way that preserves privacy. Uh, there are legal issues um, associated with the mosaic of different statutes we have in different states. Part of the problem here in the United States is we just don't have a, a national strategy for this sort of thing. So every state was cobbling together a different contact tracing strategy and you know, to deal with a virus that just doesn't really care where the state line is. So um, in the absence of a centralized database, a centralized strategy, a central, centrally administered army of contact tracers to, to do a very, uh, you know, Korea style, Singapore style contact tracing. Um, I just had very low expectations of success. And, and I formed that opinion based on just compartmentalizing all this political nonsense and, and setting it aside. There's also a lot of social issues here that relate to responsible use of tech because the people, as we've seen, most impacted uh, by COVID-19 here in the United States uh, include groups of people that have a historical distrust of the healthcare system. Uh, African-Americans in, in particular uh, just have a distrust of the healthcare system that's, that's rooted in a lot of very dubious history. Uh, any, any of your readers can look up the, the Tuskegee experiment in which African-Americans were um, deliberately infected with a disease and then observed for the effects of non-treatment of that disease. I mean, this is a, a appallingly inhumane and immoral and unethical. And you can imagine uh, how uh, a black person in America would react to the government saying, hey, download this app because we want to know who you're talking to and who you're, who you're, who you're with and <laughs> whether or not they get a positive result. No way. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to download that thing. So I just had very low expectations for the success of, of the, the digital version of this program, just because there's a legacy of distrust, uh, certainly among low-income people and minorities uh, in this country that have just been criminalized by the government uh, one too many times. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, sometimes we have this sense that uh, the technology is going to save us, but um, not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily fixing sort of the broken social contract. And if you don't have that in place, then um, and people don't feel comfortable using the technology for good reason, then it really is kind of a showstopper right there. Um, it was an excellent essay. I'm going to link it up in show notes. I hope you got a great mark on it. Um, and I want to ask you about the process of writing it. Um, so being in the workforce, you know, we write material. Um, it's not usually academic writing. And I'm just kind of wondering what's been your experience in getting back into academic writing and also, do you hate doing citations as much as I do? Yeah. Uh, blue, book, blue booking is not my, my favorite thing. I think it, it, when you, in business writing today, uh, you can just hyperlink to the article, right? It's just the easiest way to, to send someone off to say, you can, you can fact check me on this assertion. And we do it on the web. We do it in uh, Word documents that we pass around here internally. I just, you just don't see footnotes in business writing really anymore. And uh, yeah, it's a very, very, you have to context shift when you get into um, 
legal writing. I mean, I've I've had more than one professor just basically say if you if you include Wikipedia in any citation, you'll get an F on the paper. So there's <laughs> there's a certain laziness I think that uh, takes place in this is called the non-academic world uh, that you come to terms with when you get into the academic world and say, hey, here are some some rules. Maybe some of them are draconian, some of them are outdated, um, but they're they they're also uh, they also ensure a certain rigor uh, that I think is is good. So now in some of the business writing that I do, I've actually used less hyperlinking and more footnotes uh, in periodic situations just to lend that sort of scholarly research credibility to the document that what I otherwise would have just, you know, here's a link to Wikipedia, go off and, and read that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's helped in that regard, I think. Yeah, I remember the first time I got in trouble for citing Wikipedia um, early on in my program. So I, I can totally relate um, to that. Um, I want to talk a bit more. You, you shared with me earlier about people um, in your program and that it was a wide range of people um, ranging from uh, students who were fairly young, maybe coming out of an undergrad all the way up to folks who perhaps were doing this as a bit of a retirement project. Um, but I'm wondering, like in, in general, who is this program aimed at? Is it mostly for mid-career people or, or who would you say it's aimed at? Well, yes. I mean, it's all the above. The um, the program I'm in, the degree, the degree program is a master of jurisprudence. That's the degree, that's the degree uh, that I will get at the completion. And my MJ cohort uh, is a group of people that are in various stages of their career. Um, in fact, I don't I don't think I'm the oldest person in my my cohort. It's uh, a lot of uh, early career, mid career, uh, late career people. And the thing that's so cool about it is you can tailor your own curriculum based on uh, where you want to focus. Personally, I'm focused on cyber law and public policy uh, by virtue of where I work and what I do for a living. Uh, there are other people focused on environmental law. Uh, there's a couple people in my cohort that are focused on uh, rights of indigenous peoples. Uh, and you can you can tailor your uh, your curriculum accordingly. I took one course last quarter that was outside the law school. It was a combination uh, communications and political science course on uh, disinformation and the, the, the decline of democracy, which also very much relates to the tech industry, as as you know. So there's there's a flexibility there uh, that where, where you can design your own curriculum depending on where your interest lies, what your objective is, and where you are in your career. There's uh, there's one other Microsoft person. My cohort, he's uh, worked in an engineering team. There's another, there's a woman from Google. She's a developer uh, who's also in my cohort. And there's a former police officer, a um, couple of civil rights, social justice uh, activists. It's a really, really interesting group. That sounds really cool. Um, and so you you already answered my next question was, um, which was going to be, how is this organized? And you mentioned the cohort model. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about uh, the cohort model and support networks and staying motivated. I mean, we're in a pandemic right now. There's a lot going on in our lives. It's very easy, perhaps, to get distracted. Um, I'm just wondering about how you keep yourself motivated and what the role of your support networks, including your cohort, um, played in that. Um, probably very little. I mean, we run into each other in different classes, uh, from time to time where you see people, um, 
And I guess my basis of reference is the the two quarters of study that preceded uh, the move to online. So a lot of this discussion that we had earlier about in-person classes is kind of moot, at least temporarily. Uh, but the, certainly, the, I mean, the quality of instruction, the professors, students, everyone will tell you, it certainly comes down uh, when you have to move it all online. We're all all dealing with this. Uh, but I, and motivation really hasn't been uh, an issue for me just because I get so much energy from it. I had the same experience in business school. The reason I enjoyed going to school at night, uh, despite the fact that it was just long days and long hours every weekend and, and all that that stuff, it was worth it because... In, in a situation like that, you can learn something in class and go apply it at work the next day. And I'm having that same experience now. Uh, pretty much everything that I'm learning from one quarter to the next uh, has a fairly immediate near-term application to the work that I'm doing and the customer conversations that I'm having. So there's this there's this feedback loop between school and work that that they kind of meld together. They're not these, you know, compartmentalized things, which they would be if I was studying something completely foreign in anticipation of some new career that had nothing to do with I'm, nothing to do with what I'm doing now. And a lot of people do that. That's not what this is. This is to make me better at the thing I'm doing today. So it's it's a Venn diagram that it overlaps much more than I thought it would. That is really cool. And uh, you, so you've already moved online then? The program's already been on, online for the past several months? Yes. The, the, Winter quarter, which went from January to March, was in person. The last class uh, was canceled uh, when the governor of Washington started to issue guidelines and and Microsoft and University of Washington and other big institutions aligned to that. And then the the spring quarter went online. I took two classes this summer, both online, and I think University of Washington is going to be online uh, through this this fall uh, as well. Right. And, and how has that been in terms of this new delivery format? Like what, what's better, what's worse, what's missing? The thing that's better, I think, is time efficiency, only because I don't live on campus and I have to commute there and park my car and walk to, um, walk to class. If I were a student living on campus, uh, I'd be pretty bummed out right now. I know Washington in particular has a very large international student population. So some of these, some of these, Students, some of them, I mean, they're kids, right? And they're thousands of miles from home, uh, holed up in a one-bedroom uh, off-campus apartment. And the, just the mental stress, uh, I, I they feel it in a way that I don't because I have a, a job and a life and I have a, you know, a house. I'm just in a different place in my life where, whereas someone who is enrolled full-time as a university student living on campus has to deal with, with all this. Uh, on top of the risk to your health, right, from social situations and interacting with other people, which we're seeing play out now with, with back to school happening. Uh, it's just got to be incredibly stressful. So I just don't feel like I have any any basis to complain about anything. Um, I selfishly get the benefit of time efficiency. I don't have to drive to campus. Um, but other than that, I just don't have any have any complaints. I, I feel bad for a lot of the people that are being affected much more profoundly than, than I am. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's a really good point. And it, it's a tough time for people, and especially if, if school is your whole world and you're um, enrolled full time and everything changes and you're subject to all of that mental stress of, um, you know, of trying to make it work in this new format. I, I can imagine that's got to be incredibly challenging. 
Um, I do want to shift gears a little bit. I want to go back to our, our chat earlier about tech ethics and uh, just to kind of give you a bit of context around uh, my own background in this area. So back in the fall of 2018, um, I went to a talk by a prominent AI researcher here in Alberta, and he basically said that, you know, this area of AI and ethics needs a lot of work and it's going to have major implications for society. So I've been looking at that topic uh, ever since from an outsider perspective, but you are inside Microsoft, so you've got the insider perspective. And I'm wondering if you can tell me what's happening in the organization in this area, uh, what work is taking place uh, in, inside Microsoft around uh, tech ethics? This whole discussion, I think, started for us in 2016, 2017, where we started to look at what the potential impact of this technology would or could have on people in society. And corporate and, and social responsibility um, has, a, has a, I think, a critical mass now that it didn't have in the 80s and 90s when it was just shareholders uh, above all and Corporate greed had kind of reached its zenith, and I think now corporations, 100% uh, of the Fortune 500, publish an annual CSR report that talks about what they're doing to be carbon neutral and you know things like that. So this is this is a good thing, and we I think built upon that I think foundational belief of our responsibility as a multinational company to to behave responsibly in addition to looking after um, the interests of our shareholders. And so our CEO, Satya Nadella, published an op-ed piece in Slate in the summer of 2016 entitled Partnership for the Future, describing the, the, the partnership between man and machine, which is kind of our, our vision for artificial intelligence. And he talked about, uh, hey, by the way, this needs to be done responsibly because the potential for unfairness uh, is, is an issue. The potential for privacy harms is, is an issue. Um, the lack of transparency into what these black box machine learning models do, that's an issue. And that was, I think, some early test messaging that led to the publication of principles in 2017 that put a very public stake in the ground about where we stand on some of these things in a way that, that allows our customers to hold us accountable, our own employees to hold us accountable, even regulators to hold us accountable. Because the following year, we actually called for uh, increasing regulation of some of the more uh, problematic forms of this tech, inclusive of uh, facial recognition. So the industry's kind of gotten to a place around 2018, 2019, where everyone was uh, uh, unfurling their principles and putting out a lot of press releases and blog posts and PowerPoint slides. And uh, that was the point at which we had already made the shift toward uh, rebuilding our, our, rebuilding probably isn't the right word, reimagining our engineering culture in a way that builds responsible practices into every stage of the product life cycle, uh, even at the earliest, most formative stage of a product idea, thinking about who is this for? What are the potential harms uh, for those people? What are the mitigations that, and interventions that we can provide now? And how do we audit this capability throughout the product life cycle to make sure that the thing that we're taking to market uh, doesn't create the harms uh, that we've so publicly asserted that we're, we're trying to avoid. So it's, there's a lot of, I think, uh, less visible work going on behind the scenes in our product lifecycle to make sure that the, our product development teams are adopting harms frameworks and going through impact assessments and going through uh, modeling exercises uh, to kind of look a couple chess moves ahead about what a product um, 
might potentially do, which is something that the tech industry has been very bad at for, for decades, right? It's not like impact of technology on people and society and potential harms is, is something new. Social scientists have been studying this for, for decades. Uh, they've just been sounding the alarm bell and no one was listening. Uh, a lot of companies, I think, were more interested in commercializing a product idea, getting it to scale, making a zillion dollars, and then figuring out, okay, what do we do now? And this is what we've seen in, in video games. We've seen it in mobile device addiction. We've seen it in social media. And the stakes are just too high to continue to repeat that pattern of uh, trying to retrofit uh, harms, retrofit products that are doing harm to society after the fact you have to to make it part of your your product life cycle so that's what we're working on today that is amazing and and speaks to me on so many levels and the work that i i've done uh in my own academic journey is, is very much aligned with that idea of trying to um instill this in, into processes and, and early on in the game um, I, I'm wondering, what advice would you give to someone who wants to work in the space of technology ethics, who maybe wants to do what you do, Tim? What advice would you have for that person? Oh, boy. Um, hmm, that's kind of a tough one because I was able to put myself in this position due in no small part to the fact that I'd been at the company a long time. At, at the time, there were no there were no job requis requisitions out on our jobs website uh, for people uh, to come do ethics advocacy so it was it was kind of created at a formative stage in the in the company's life cycle i think that uh, formative stage in the in the, the company's uh, ethical tech life cycle i think that having a an awareness of of this regardless of what kind of role you're you're working on or applying for doesn't you know just because um you don't work in engineering doesn't mean you you can't have influence and impact here. If you work in PR, if you work in marketing, if you work in engineering, if you work in legal public policy, if you work in research and development, if you work in corporate corp strategy, um, every one of those orgs, every one of those entities in any company is a stakeholder uh, in this. So um, don't let the job that you're in now limit the way you think about the impact that, that you could have, you'll just come at it from a, a different, different place. Right. So we are, uh, we're coming up towards the end of our time here. We're going to wrap up pretty shortly, but I just want to pull back a bit and zoom out. Um, what I find um, when I'm talking to people who've gone back to school is that in addition to what they actually learn in the class, the content of their academic work, there's also a lot of reflective learning that takes place um, personally um, so I'm wondering, what have you learned about yourself in terms of going back to school? Um, was there anything that surprised you or challenged you at a personal level? You know, Richard Feynman had this uh, well-known quote that education is not something you ever finish. So I, although there's a sense of achievement, I think, from passing through milestones, in your career, either in the form of a, of, a, of a degree or a promotion or a new job or kind of the big ticket things that happen to you throughout the course of your career, uh, it's fine to, to celebrate those things, but none of them should, should uh, ever be considered a final destination for anything. Uh, I, I'm on schedule right now, I think, to potentially finish up this degree this coming June, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss it when it's gone. I have to have to be honest with you. I remember when I was in business school, I just couldn't wait to get done. After three years of night school, I just, you know, 
I just couldn't wait to, to, to be done with it. And uh, I'm going to actually miss, I'm going to miss it. I, I, I see I get a lot of energy from it and I'm already thinking about, hmm, what, what's, what do I need to do next to, to, to challenge myself and, and, and uh, identify something that I should know, but don't. And what are the mechanisms I can employ to, to shore up that learning deficit? Cause I just, I just enjoy learning and I have no uh, misconceptions about how little I know about the job that I'm doing, the industry I'm in, the world in general. <laughs> it's just kind of an unlimited uh, set of opportunities to, to, to go learn if that's what gives you energy. And for me, it, it does. Yeah, I, I have a feeling this is not your last educational journey. Um, I just want to wrap up by uh, asking you, is there anything else that you want to add? Is there any advice that you want to share for um, other people who are thinking about going back to school? Well, I, the advice I would give is for people who want to learn, and it doesn't necessarily have to be back to school. You know, my bias toward an institutional attachment or degree programs or ivy covered buildings. I mean, these are all personal biases of mine. That doesn't mean it's the answer for everyone. For I mean, a lot of people uh, spend a lot of time doing coursework on Coursera, and they come out the back end uh, an order of magnitude smarter than they were when they went in. And if that's what works for you, that's what you should keep keep doing. If YouTube videos of academic lectures in situational um, places in your career is is sufficient to shore up the learning deficit that you've identified in yourself because you were in some customer conversation where, a, you know, that went over your head, do that, that if that works for you. So just find the, the formula that, that works for you. You know, 10, 20 years ago, none of these options existed. You either went back to school or, I mean, or you just went to the library and checked out some books. That was it. And today there's, there's something for everyone, no matter what stage of education, career, life, your age um, doesn't make any difference. The form factor that you want to cons consume, even if you have a, a learning disability, now there are technologies that help make this kind of learning easier for uh, people with learning disabilities as well, who were previously just completely excluded from this opportunity. So it's everything has gotten better uh, across the board. And that comes from the, the variety of options and, and choices that are available. So true. Well, on that note, Tim, I want to say thank you so much for being here and thanks for sharing your story. Thank you, Christina. Thanks for having me on and uh, really enjoyed the chat. To be an eternal master is to be a perpetual student. I saw that quote recently in a blog post by one of my favorite podcasters, Srini Rao. And in thinking about my conversation with Tim O'Brien about the role of lifelong education and how Microsoft is fostering a learning culture, that quote seems very appropriate. I loved Tim's story about how his dad's educational pursuits at night school were a model for Tim's own philosophy of learning and how Tim in turn is modeling this for his own kids. Like many of my guests who are augmenting their skills, Tim is able to take classroom concepts and apply them to his work right away. It's a great way to solidify learning. Conversely, work can fuel the theory by presenting real-life issues to be solved. I also enjoyed our chat about tech ethics. As I'm working now to build a role for myself in this field, I loved Tim's advice. 
that he basically carved out this role for himself. I think that's how the most interesting jobs are created. You figure out where and how you can play in a space and then you find the support to make it happen. Lastly, Tim is already lamenting the end of his program, even though he has another year to go. But I don't think this is Tim's last educational journey. Far from it. That's our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. A huge thanks to our sponsor, Athabasca University, for generously supporting the show. You can find out more about their many educational offerings at athabascau.ca. If you like the show, please give us a rating. It helps other people connect to us. You can reach me at backtoschoolagain.ca or at schoolagainpod on all the usual social channels. I'd love to hear your story. Back to School Again was recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis people. Special thanks to our talented technical producer, Corey Stroder. Back to School Again is proud to be affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network. Find out more at albertapodcastnetwork.com. See you next time.